Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Tom Jones, author of the new book, From Willard Street to Wall Street, a memoir. Tom Jones is founder and senior partner of venture capital investment firm TWJ Capital. He previously served as chief executive officer of global investment management at Citigroup, vice chairman, president, and chief operating officer at TIAA CREF and Senior Vice President and Treasurer at John Hancock Insurance Company. Jones received master's degrees from Cornell University and Boston University and holds honorary doctoral degrees from Howard University, Pepperdine, and College of New Rochelle. We spoke to Tom about his pivotal experiences at Cornell University 50 years ago, his career on Wall Street, and his thoughts on the state of race relations in our country. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. We're in our main meeting room, and there are hun- we're surrounded by hundreds of books. <laughs> Tom has been in here uh, since yesterday, hand-signing hundreds of books to friends, colleagues, VIPs. Um, his new book, From Willard Straight to Wall Street. He's, uh, has, we have advanced copies out, uh, and we're going to be sending them out to uh, many people. And so it's, a, it's an honor to have you uh, at Sage House at Cornell, um, and you have an amazing story. Thank you. Amazing story. Um, you know, you've entered Cornell when you were 16 years old, and you were one of only 37 black students in a freshman class of 2,600. Tell us about your experiences at Cornell, and specifically about what happened almost exactly 50 years ago in April of 1969. Well, my experience at Cornell was frankly, pretty wonderful. And uh, one of the interesting things is that that was not the typical experience for a black student. I came here at age 16, was elected freshman class president. I felt very comfortable on campus. I felt like I fit academically and socially. I joined a very popular fraternity I was a very happy student at Cornell. Uh, What I learned uh, as uh, additional numbers of black students were recruited in the subsequent years, I was class of 1969, and and most of my compatriots uh, in that class of 69, most of my black compatriots came from major cities like New York and Chicago, uh, especially the New York area. In the next year or two, many of the black students who came in um, were from uh, southern areas, more rural areas, uh, uh, had life experiences which entailed much more friction Um, with uh, white society, Uh, students who had been in Little Rock, Arkansas, as an example, in the midst of that ugly school desegregation crisis where the white population was spitting on on the black students who were trying to integrate Little Rock High School and threatening them with physical violence. So as 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 I became friends, uh, 
uh, this broader circle of black students, I began to understand how different their life experiences were than mine, and frankly, how different their experiences at Cornell were than mine. You know, not all of them felt welcomed at Cornell. Uh, very few of them were invited to join sororities and fraternities. And uh, as I, over the years, as I, uh, uh, let's say, internalized uh, an understanding of their life experiences and read deeply and widely with regards to the historical experience of African Americans in this country, I came to understand that there was uh, a historic fight with regards to black civil rights and that uh, notwithstanding how well I was treated, that I had to be engaged in that fight for the, the uh, wider black community. And with regards to Willard Strait Hall in particular, one of the significant things uh, with regards to the guns at Cornell is that, um, uh, you know, it was only after the uh, white fraternity Delta Upsilon um, entered Willard Strait Hall on the, uh, you know, the mission that they were going to throw us out of the building. It was only at that time that we armed ourselves. And the context of that in historical perspective is that this country has a long history of uh, blacks being brutalized and terrorized by vigilantes. That's essentially what the Ku Klux Klan was, a vigilante group whose mission was to terrorize black citizens into subjugation. And so the, the symbolism of what we did at Willard Strait Hall when we armed ourselves is we essentially said, we are the generation of African Americans that are not going to be intimidated by vigilantes. And I'm proud of that. I'm proud that we did that. Yeah, I mean, that, that section in the book, it's you, that's the turning point. You can see it. That the, the Delta Upsilon comes in, and you, there was a fight, and you said, "Then raise the stakes, raise the stakes." I uh, actually had not thought that taking over Willard Strait Hall was necessary or a good idea. I was not in the leadership. Yeah, but I was there because I believed in the solidarity with the group. Yeah. But when Delta Upsilon came in, and I heard the commotion. I immediately recognized the situation and said, it's not going to happen this way. Yeah. We're not going to be thrown out of here by a group of vigilantes. Yeah. And I got totally committed to the fight. And then that fight, it's amazing uh, and, and riveting to see how, how the student body comes in support and then you go to Barton Hall and it's packed. Tell us a little bit about that experience. Well, I'm actually... Uh, very, very proud of Cornell that the white student community, in effect, interceded on the side of the black students. That's what happened. Yeah. 
if the white students had not interceded on our behalf and created a situation where both uh, the, the potential intervention of police forces, which were massing in downtown Ithaca, or, you know, harsh sanctions uh, imposed by the faculty or administration, if, 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 if that dynamic had been where either the police or the faculty or the administration was able to focus solely on black students, the outcome would have been much uglier yeah. than what actually happened. Because when the white students intervened by taking over Barton Hall, that meant that any police action or faculty action or administration action had to be directed at the general student body and not just a potentially isolated group of black students. So I'm enormously appreciative of that solidarity and support from the broader Cornell student community on behalf of the black students. Great, great. Um, I'm going to connect in with the, you know, your, your, your book is bookended by Cornell. We'll jump to the last chapter for a second. Uh, a return to see how far we've come. So you've, you've uh, you know, had, a, uh, as you said, a, a, an excellent experience at Cornell, and that's, that stayed with you, and you still have ongoing connections with Cornell. Could you uh, give us some highlights of, of those most recent uh, connections? Well, my most recent connections were uh, I was elected to the Board of Trustees in the 1990s, and uh, subsequently elected uh, trustee emeritus. Um, and I also received the uh, Frank Rhodes Award for Exemplary uh, Alumni Leadership. Uh, I received the Board of Trustees' highest honor, which is to be elected as a presidential counselor. And uh, but most significantly to me, I was asked to participate in the university's 150th uh, birthday celebration, which was called the Sesquicentennial Celebration, which consisted of a very creative show, which was put together to kind of tell the Cornell story. Uh, and uh, I was part of a portion of that show which was about the Cornell community, community and society, and I told the story of, uh, and, you know, very brief kind of three-minute nutshell, told the story of how Cornell was founded on this promise of access to education for all. I would found an institution where any person can find instruction in any study. It was, it was open, Cornell was open to women and minorities in a way that other American universities were not at that time. And, and I tell the story that this was not an idle promise, that in fact, uh, you know, Cornell founded in 1865. Uh, by 1869, uh, there was an African-American in attendance at Cornell, and by 1870, there was female students in attendance at Cornell. 
And in that era, that was unusual for American higher education. The commitment of Cornell to educating African Americans was such that by 1906, the first African American intercollegiate fraternity was actually founded at Cornell, wow. Alpha Phi Alpha. And, you know, it's kind of remarkable to imagine that there were enough black students at Cornell in 1906 that yeah. they could form a fraternity. Um, but then Cornell went through an era, and I guess all America went through an era, post-Reconstruction, a backlash against civil rights for African Americans, uh, similar to the Jim Crow era, era that developed across the South. Uh, and so there were fewer students, fewer black students at Cornell. By the time I came in the early 60s, there were fewer black students here then than there had been in 1906. That's so strange. Um, and you know that had been the pattern through the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Then my class was the first class recruited under Cornell President uh, James Perkins, who had also been head of the United Negro College Fund and uh, renewed commitment to the education um, educational opportunity for African Americans in elite universities like Cornell. So uh, I was part of that first wave of new recruitment to Cornell. And uh, you know what happened in 1969 was now celebrated. You know, the Willard Strait Hall takeover was celebrated in this sesquicentennial event as this is the story of our community being fractured, but also how we subsequently came together. Mm -hmm. the and the healing process, the reconciliation process. And so my script runs through as, as I'm talking on the screen behind me, because this is in a very large theater with thousands of people in the audience. It's running through all the different uh, educational programs, and housing accommodations and recruitment effort, recruitment and retention efforts that Cornell now engages in with regards to not just African American students, but Latino students, American Indian students, uh, Asian students, various other minorities. And so it's, 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 uh, it's community and diversity. And it's, I'm just I was just delighted to be able to articulate, you know, that side of the Cornell story for the sesquicentennial celebration. Oh, that's very inspiring. That's very inspiring. Excellent. Excellent. Um, well, the book, uh, your memoir is From Willard Street to Wall Street. Uh, you spent uh, decades in Wall Street holding high-level positions at John Hancock, TIA Craft, Citigroup. Uh, you're the founder and senior partner of your own capital investment firm, TWJ Capital. Um, could you give us some insights on your experiences on Wall Street? And I was particularly interested in this line from your book where you said, I'm not sure if it's possible to rise far without the presence of interested and well-placed mentors along the way. Uh, well, there are two sides to that comment. Um, one is that... Uh, as you rise in the business world, 
at every level, you know, it's a pyramid. And so at every level, um, others have dropped out or been removed from the competition for various reasons. And so increasingly, everybody that's left is pretty good. Everybody that's left is pretty good. Yeah. And so um, the selection process with regards to who rises to the next step becomes increasingly subjective because for the most part the objective credentials and capabilities of the various candidates are hard to distinguish. They have all, they all have the right Everybody, skills. Everybody's got, everybody's touched all the right bases. Everybody's got, you know, all the right credentials. Mm -hmm. um, and so the decisions with regards to uh, opportunities and promotions are increasingly subjective. And so, um, you know, you can't rise to that next step unless somebody in position to make that decision mm -hmm. wants to lift you to that next step. Yeah. You can't force your way there. Somebody's got to want to lift you into that position. So you must have a mentor, somebody who knows who you are and is interested in helping you. Now the other side of that is I've learned over the years that those who are in those high positions to help others often got there because they were successful over the years in building the most effective teams mm -hmm. that drove the business success of the corporation. And uh, one of the things that characterizes them as these successful team builders over the years is that you know they're almost what you might think of as super super scouts or super super coaches. Mm -hmm. They know they have to have an organization that produces a lot, that accomplishes a lot. They're always on the outlook for talent, people that can help them produce a lot, sure. perform at a higher level. So they're almost like scouts where they're looking for talent. They're looking for people that they can add to their team because one of the ways they rise higher in the organization is if they have the best team. Yeah. So um, in that sense, the mentor-mentee relationship is mutually beneficial. You find a mentor who's interested in helping you and lifting you, but that mentor is also there, yet they genuinely like you and they genuinely want to help you, but they're also self-interested, sure, which sure. is they're trying to build an organization <laughs> which is successful and effective and a winner. And um, You've, you've caught their eye as somebody that can be part of a winning team. And I was fortunate in my years in business that um, um, I, was, I was picked out a number of times by, by uh, high-level people who thought that I might have special talent 
and they wanted to bring me on to their team. And uh, that enabled me to be successful in the corporate world. That's great. Yeah, it sounds like as, as you were saying that they bring out the best in you and then by doing so, they the whole team looks good and they look good as well. Exactly. And, then, and they're more successful. Exactly. Yeah. It's mutually beneficial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent, excellent. Now this is a big topic, um, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on it. How is our how far has our country progressed in race relations, and how far have we yet to go? Well, America seems to find it. You know, we 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 all we tend to see the glass as half empty, <laughs> and so I'm a little bit amazed, to be honest with you, that this country has. Uh, advanced, progressed as far as it has in the last 50 years and that we don't spend more time celebrating that advancement. Uh, you know, at the time of uh, Willard Strait Hall, in the, 19, in, in, in the 1960s, uh, America was still fighting battles over uh, fundamental civil rights, things like being able to use public accommodations. I mean, when I was a child and traveled in the South with my parents, states, I mean, what's considered to now be a progressive state, you know, states like, states like Virginia and North Carolina, uh, which is where my parents were from, my, parent, my father, when we stopped, at gas stations, before he would buy gas, my father would ask, were we going to be allowed to use the restrooms? Wow. Because black people were not allowed to use the restrooms everywhere. So um, that, that's my lifetime, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, the kind of uh, 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 systemic racial discrimination that my father faced uh, as he sought employment. I mean, you know, there was de jure discrimination, de jure meaning in the law, discrimination against African Americans enshrined in the law in many states in this country. And then where it wasn't de jure in the law, it was de facto, meaning by social practice, discrimination against African Americans was the institutional norm in most parts of this country, in most of the dominant social institutions. Um, so things that we take for granted today, these kind of uh, access to public accommodations, uh, voting rights, yeah. employment law rights, uh, equal justice under the law, those were all in question back in the 1960s. And none of that is in question today, it's just taken for granted. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and by the same token, um, you know, the while there, while there continues to be widespread and disproportionate poverty 
in the black community, it's also true that millions and millions of African Americans have lifted themselves out of poverty and are in the middle class and large numbers even more prosperous than that. Yeah. I mean, we have, when, when, when I was a child, it was an event. It was an event. Everybody gathered around if there was a black person on television. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, Things it, have changed. It, yeah, it was, it, it, it was an event, you know, a baseball player, a basketball player. I mean, things like the Bill Cosby show. These were made, major social events, breakthrough events. All of that is commonly accepted now and widespread and not even questioned. Yeah. Uh, you showed me some statistics where, uh, you know, 8% of the incoming freshman class at Cornell is now African Americans. Well, what was it when I was in my freshman class, 37 I think out was, of 2,500? That's 1%. Yeah, 1%. That's 1.5%, right? Yeah. Um, so... Um, you know there has been enormous progress in this country now that doesn't that does not take away from what organizations like black lives matters are trying to say with regards to police and vigilante violence against african americans or continued widespread poverty amongst african americans but the truth is for every case that Black Lives Matters highlights with regards to police or vigilante violence against African Americans, the relative frequency of those kind of events was 50 times greater 50 years ago yeah. and probably 100 times greater 100 years ago. So while we have not eliminated that those events in their entirety, we should celebrate how much we have eliminated. I don't know if we'll ever eliminate 100% of it because we will always have bad people yeah. in our society. We will have always have people who hate other people because of their race or their religion or their ethnicity or whatever other reason they choose to hate. Yeah. But why not celebrate the progress that we've made in so greatly diminishing the proportions of that kind of vigilante and police violence and the standard that now is widely accepted that the police have to be accountable for this violence, the vigilantes have to be accountable for this violence. So, so I'm enormously encouraged by how much progress America has made and uh, frankly I wish that our society took more time to celebrate that progress. Um, and the final point I would make is, uh, and, and, you know, and this is partially symbolic, but what, what a compelling symbolic demonstration it was to elect a black president. I never would have thought that would happen in my lifetime. Yeah. And my final point I was in tears two years ago on the Washington Mall at the opening of the new National Museum of African American History and Culture. I've heard it's amazing. Who would have thought 
that in my lifetime that this country would celebrate the contributions of African Americans to this country by that kind of grand structure on the National Mall. So, um, you know, my attitude is very much, uh, is, is our society perfect? No. Um, do we still have a ways to go? Yes. Should, but should we celebrate how far we have come, you know, and how much we have accomplished? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the health of our society needs recognition and celebration of the success, not always just animosity um, and, 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 and dwelling on the negatives. We also need to dwell on the positives. That's so, that's so encouraging to hear and so, such helpful words because, as, as you uh, so rightly point out, our news media is just constantly barraging us with just everything that's negative. It's almost as though it's not news unless it's negative. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> a celebration, we don't do that. Right, we don't you know? do that. We don't do that. So, so uh, that is very encouraging. And I think we, we would do, uh, our, our national fabric would be much stronger if we did do more of what you said, more celebration, more pointing out the positives rather than just constantly beating the drum of, of negative stories. So. And, and as, I know we need to wrap up, but yeah. just think about this. If you're a parent, if you have children, you understand that you can't raise a healthy child if you always dwell on the negative. Yeah. You cripple your child psychologically if you always dwell on the negative and don't recognize the positives of what, what the child is trying to do. You know, the constructive feedback, the recognition of their progress from year to year to year as they develop skills and capabilities is an enormously important component of their development as healthy, into healthy adolescents and then healthy young adults. And, you know, that same dynamic is also true in the broader society that Dwelling on the negatives is cancerous. Yeah, it's cancerous. It creates it, it creates it creates a dynamic um, which undermines goodwill um, and and undermines a sense of well-being and positive energy, and it's ultimately really unhealthy yeah. for our country. I like that analogy. If we could just spread that out and see our nation as our family as well. It's very much our family. Yeah, yeah. And we need to care about this mental health of the entire family. Yeah, excellent. Well, thank you so much for this hopeful message. And congratulations again on your new book, From Willard Strait to Wall Street. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. All right, thank you, Tom. That was Tom Jones, author of the new book, From Willard Strait to Wall Street, a memoir. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on Tom's book. To receive a discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. <laughs>